Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller and on the show. For more than two and a half years, the wire service Reuters has been trying to find out what happened to their two staff members on this street in the suburb of New Baghdad. WikiLeaks says this is what happened. The voice on the tape, presumably a member of the military, says there has been shooting in the area and receives permission to open fire. When people are labeled as insurgents, um, are they really insurgents? It, it seems to be the case that uh, from, we, from the scenes in this video, that any person that is not a man uh, and sometimes not a woman uh, is by default labeled as an insurgent. Light them all up. Come on, fire. From a distance, you hear the voices on the tape watch as the wounded try to crawl to help, but when help arrives... Come on, let us shoot. You're engaged. 1-8, clear. Come on. In this video, I think you see the corruption of pilots and the military by war itself, in particular by modern nature of aerial warfare. So you see these young pilots acting like they're playing video games, only the high scores they are getting are with real human lives. Even from high above, the harsh reality becomes evident as the troops that arrive find two children wounded. You see them carry their small bodies and call for help. Hey, uh, I need to get the, rat, the brass to drop ramps. I got a wounded girl. We need to take the rest of mine. The response on the tape. It's their fault for bringing their kids to a battle. That's right. Patty Colhane, Al Jazeera, Washington. And that was footage WikiLeaks and Julian Assange exposed as among the U.S. war crimes in Iraq on this, the week of the 20th anniversary of the U.S. invasion and occupation of Iraq. And for exposing those U.S. war crimes as press, Assange, locked away in solitary in the U.K.'s Belmarsh prison, faces U.S. extradition and 175 years in prison for espionage as endless extradition appeals continue. And the struggle of Assange to prevail over charges unheard of against the press is now a documentary Ithaca, following along with Assange's father, John Shipton, as he fights for the freedom of his son around the world. And Shipton joins us from London to talk about that journey for justice, the symbolism of Ithaca in Greek mythology, as Odysseus, like Assange, on a quest, a yearning, to return home, along with references in our conversation to Camus, Sisyphus, and Julian the Person versus the public narrative and Hollywood. Welcome, John Shipton, to our show. Hello. Thank you. What can you say about the opening quote and why it was chosen? Torture is a tool used to send a warning to others. It is most effective when it is inflicted in public. Oh, well, that is uh, a quote from uh, Professor Niels Melzer, who was the, at the time the United Nations Rapporteur on Torture and Special... Uh, I forget the rest. But anyway, the United Nations... Uh, uh, special rapporteur on torture. Um, he is well versed in understanding the phenomenon that if torture is done in public in the way, uh, and particularly with the added thought of malice, as in the case of Julian locking him up uh, in a maximum security prison, and keeping him incommunicado and never having an end date to this persecution uh, and the circumstances uh, like a show trial or uh, smearing, mobbing, those circumstances amount 
to uh, torture mm. and other people in that work, uh, publishers, radio hosts like yourself, uh, will be constrained um, by that. And that is evident that now it's become quite difficult to, as, uh, say, for example, Seymour Hirsch found recently mm. that you have to publish on Substack um, and then do a, a series of interviews with WBAI or other uh, media outlets to explain your position. Um, so the effect of Julian's public torture has chilled capacity of publishers and journalists, reporters, to report and publish anything that may be con considered, uh, well, difficult you know, or controversial, if you want to use that word. And incidentally, when you were in a cab in London in the film, and listening to shows reporting on Julian, you're tuning in actually to a show on our Pacifica station. What can you say about any updates or changes in Julian's situation since this film was made? They've made an application for a, uh, an appeal to the High Court, and that application is uh, reviewed by a High Court judge on the papers. Um, the United States Department of Justice submitted their section of the appeal on the 31st of October. Uh, and since then, we wait. We continue to wait for the judge's determination. And what part did you have in creating and shaping this documentary beyond your series of interviews? I just went about uh, the work of... Um, uh, speaking to people and attending rallies and uh, uh, negotiating with politicians wherever it was possible. Now, the strain of dealing with the press is evident for you throughout the film. So why did you continue those frustrating encounters with them, and now as well with the release of Ithaca? Oh, well, <laughs> um, <laughs> there's, there's uh, no other avenue, you know, to fight for Julian's freedom. So you choose those avenues, you head down the avenues that are available. Um, if there were uh, a, an avenue of meditation and contemplation uh, available to bring about Julian's freedom, I'd happily take that. What do you hope this film conveys to audiences? There, there seems to be three different audiences the public, the press, and governments, the UK and the US government. Uh, do you see this film conveying something different for those three or the same? Oh, oh yes, no, that's a, an astute observation and a good question. Yes, the three elements are there. Uh, first one is the most important is to people, what we call the public or the demos. Uh, that Julian, you know, isn't the tech head monster that he's been portrayed as, richly human, family that will uh, defend him under every circumstance, as lovely children and a devoted wife uh, who spends her waking hours when not attending to the children fighting for her husband's freedom. So that the principal element, to embrace the public in this matter. The secondary element is to have the press understand that what has happened to this publisher will happen to them. Um, and consequently, if they go quiet and don't, uh, don't join in this uh, battle, they will succumb to government fiat any sort, you know, um, as you've seen with Twitter, they, all of the uh, deep state uh, uh, was involved in directing the way uh, publications on Twitter could be made. And the third is uh, to politicians that uh, the public 
uh, understand that this is uh, an unfair, malicious prosecution and that uh, they have the opportunity to lessen the credibility gap between the execution of policy and the execution of administration in government and, and the concerns and needs of the populace. And has Julian been aware of the film, perhaps seen some of it by cell phone, and if so, his reaction? Uh, I, I don't know. He, he, he's, uh, if he, I haven't spoken to him about uh, I just did speak to him about uh, where we're going next in the film, but I don't know that he's seen it. If he would see it, it would have to come in by uh, the the lawyers, you know, uh, uh, via the lawyers. They would have to take it in because uh, the uh, cell phone Zoom uh, is not available to to uh, Julian. You have to; it's only available to a husband and wife and under special circumstances at special times. Now, your struggle on behalf of your son also emphasizes the second invisible or ignored party when it comes to prosecution families. What can you say about that? And have you been in contact or sought support from other families of the incarcerated? No, uh, I haven't sought support. And there's... uh, in the human rights legislation, there are the rights of the child. And it seems, you know, that to have parents, to have parents at home, particularly in the case of remand prisoners who are not held for anything violent, to have that parents around looking after the children is not considered at all. I did ask at the time uh, a couple of years ago, uh, a well-known human rights barrister stand in uh, and represent the children in the court case, but it, uh, it was found that it would be a futile exercise that the court wouldn't make room for the considerations of the, the children, Julian's children. Yeah. Uh, this was the advice at the time. And what would you like to say to the press that has endlessly hounded and harassed you? Well, recently it was uh, uplifting to see that the five original partners in the publications of the cables of Iraq war logs and Afghan war files uh, joined together and made a mutual statement asking the uh, Attorney General Mary Garland to drop the matter, to drop the charges. That was the New York Times, the Guardian, uh, uh, De Spiegel, El Pay, and Le Monde. Um, it was heartening to see them come to realise the circumstances that they had ended up in, in not standing firm with a fellow published. Uh, Adding to that, it was the publisher of the New York Times that signed that letter, and not the editorial staff. So principally, publishers and journalists and reporters are caught within this net. And uh, Salzberger, the Salzberger, the publisher of New York Times, understood that clearly when he signed the letter. You also speak of the conflict between Julian, the person, and the narrative, or somewhat the Hollywood narrative, and opposing a narrative. What are your thoughts about that and how it can be effectively opposed? Oh, well, (laughs) it's very powerful. (laughs) I mean, it's almost essential these days to run something as a narrative. Um, so much so, you know, that biblical beginning, uh, at the beginning, the genesis, the middle and the end, the judgment has become uh, endemic. That's how we are. But, oh, that's how, how we see things. 
I see things, of course, a, a little bit differently. Um, it, I like the Sisyphean uh, legend as, as uh, uh, interpreted by Albert Camus, that you push the, each day you push the rock up the hill uh, to the brow of the hill, and it's there for a second, and you have on that day achieved the greatest possible thing, the challenge of the day. And that, of course, it happens every day of one's life. Um, assembling one's life into a narrative is uh, an overweening convenience. However, it doesn't at all help with the each day's work. You know, so in this job, you do your best each day with what comes towards you. Uh, and if one were to think after. Now it's 13 years. Um, if one were to be rely upon a narrative uh, for emotional energy, we would have none left. You know. And where do you see yourself going from here? And your struggle for Julian, along with the film's release? Uh, well, in Australia, we're uh, quite strong. And um, the last government, the, sorry, the current government, the independents and the Greens were all elected to office or parliament on an Assange platform. So the next job is to ensure that the Australian executive, the prime minister and the foreign minister devote themselves to uh, bringing Julian home to his family. So, um, so it was on Mexican TV. It's on Australian uh, TV um, and German and plans for French and uh, the UK. It'll be on UK television as well. So find uh, most of the uh, support that the film generates comes in a broader sense from uh, television exposure yeah. in a more solid but slower sense. It comes from uh, going on the road and taking the film round and doing the Q&As. So that's really solid. Um, it, it's, it's not broad. So you go and do the, you go and do the Q&As and that brings a solid foundation when it eventually comes on. TV. Also, the uh, Q&As and uh, individual showings of the film in cities, um, they attract some attention, uh, which works its way into the press. You get reviews and things like that. But for um, more details, you just go to ithaca.movie.com. Sorry, ithaca.movie.com. Uh, as for the film's display schedules at uh, ithacamovie.com. And that has the full display schedule. And any last word about Ithaca and your hopes, both personally and politically, and now as well with the release of Ithaca? Well, there's a, a paradox here, uh, because as Australians, we're given warm hospitality in the United States that we agitate in the United States uh, for the Department of Justice to see the human rights uh, degradation around Julian and also the degradation of uh, the First Amendment to the Constitution of the United States. So we do, we have that paradox that we become critical of the national security section of the Department of Justice, however we're given hospitality and warmth wherever we go in the United States. Yeah. Okay, thank you, John Shipton, for joining us on the show from London, and I will get the word out. Thank you, Bridget. You're oh. very kind. Bye. Bye. And more information about the release of Ithaca is again at Ithaca.movie. 
And coming up next on Arts Express, how can artists today in their work fight the power of the deep state and oppose the Hollywood industrial complex? And is there really such a thing as art that is not political? Here to bring clarity to those issues and more is Heartland painter, mixed media and photomontage Iowa artist, Peter Wise, sorting it all out. Peter, as an artist, why is the issue of politics something that you're concerned about? Well, uh, to me, art without politics or any kind of social um, uh, dimension to it is only half, it's uh, half of a horse, you might say. It, it's pretty, it's, it looks good above couches, but uh, it really doesn't have any uh, relationship with the societal conditions that it's created in. And it, it's enhanced by political thought. And while the eternal debate exists about political art and those who insist art should be free of politics to be considered art at all, on the other hand, isn't all art political in one way or another, even when professing to be free of politics? Oh, absolutely, that's true. Um, people, uh, well, from a Marxist point of view, um, people who are viewers um, uh, have a social consciousness which they're probably not aware of. It's usually a false consciousness. For instance, uh, uh, any beautiful landscapes are not uh, uh, just beautiful landscapes. They're informed by the the, the um, superstructures of society in, in which uh, uh, they're created. In other words, it means all is good, all is pleasant. Uh, we all live wonderful lives. That's the false consciousness part of it. Uh, yes, they are beautiful um, by themselves, but they don't tell people too much about themselves or the history of how they got there. You could say any 19th century painting by the Hudson River Valley uh, painters, which showed a paradisical, uh, well, it was the United States by then, uh, excluded any thoughts of the genocide that occurred before those paintings could be made. And... Uh, that's only one example. I think you take any Western society and you have complacency immediately in the painting and people look at them and think, well, everything's good here. You know, we're all doing well. I'm all right, Jack. But the fact is that paintings are created under historically uh, conflicting situations as well as during peacetime. And where would you say most artists fit in ideologically in the scheme of things assuming that most, whatever their current class status as a result of celebrity or, on the other hand, economic failure, that most originate in the middle class and all the baggage that entails that they bring with them. In other words, what do you see as the potential limitations of artists and, by extension, their art in the ideological conflict between art dedicated to mass rebellion and revolution and, on the other hand, their contradictory identification with individual freedom of the artist as being the most important thing? Well, that's a weighted question and a very complicated one. Uh, first, I would say that the duty of art is to keep up with the ideological oppression of the people, uh, the, the alienation, the uh, uh, almost anesthetizing of the people into everything's good. Uh, so I'd say it's art's duty. Um, in the 19th century, painting was a very good way to contradict the the, uh, the the state or the actions of the state, but we moved on. So any forms of art have to keep up with the ability of the state to control all means of communication, and, and in that way, films are very important to contradict the day-to-day uh, -day operation of the government with its oppressing people. As for an individual towing an ideological line, and I have to say that art from the left has always been superior to art from the right, because uh, art, for instance, in uh, in the Third Reich was um, was obviously propagandistic, and all it was uh, uh, created for was to oppress the people and, and propagandize uh, genocide and racism and all that. It, it's a little more complicated in the uh, in post World War II uh, things, but still the left has uh, well, you know, it's almost like we've got on our side. I'm not going to say that. <laughs> Please don't quote me on that. But but the value of art is certainly greater uh, from leftist positions than it is from rightist positions. Um, I don't know why that is particularly. 
maybe because people are taught not to be free thinkers uh, if they're ideologically to the right. So the rest of your question, well, certainly that's, I mean, that is the, that is the question. The government holds all the cards in, in, in terms of controlling the media. So uh, even if uh, ideological art on the left is uh, always going to lose, and it will always lose, it still has the, the capability to unsettle people and make them think, no matter what the government does. For instance, um, you can't make a war movie or anything associated with the military without the military physician um, of them reading your script and uh, either denying it or allowing it and then giving, giving the people who have the Pentagon's permission. They can, they can make any movie they want, like, um, for instance, Top Gun. Uh, that whole series is just mere um, government propaganda enwrapped in a, in a fictional story. So, so my point is, um, the left can never succeed in overcoming um, government propaganda. Like, I suppose there's going to be a movie about our intervention in Ukraine, which is positive. It, it could only be thus in this country. But uh, it's it's the duty of the left to, by any other means, to create a doubt about that position, which is obviously un, untrue, and. It's a, it's a David and Goliath sort of situation, always has been in governments, particularly now because of the technological superiority of, of corporations and, and the military industrial complex. So it doesn't, it's really not a relevant question as to whether an artist should or shouldn't do it, thinking they're going to lose um, anyway, but they must do it. It's our duty. And it seems to be the eternal contradiction for the artist between individual creative freedom. And the question of freedom for or freedom from, even those artists inspired by revolution, in other words, freedom from poverty, freedom from hunger, and from homelessness, and the artists dialectically seeming to be caught between the two. Well, I think they're synonymous, actually. Um, freedom for and, and freedom from uh, essentially drawing on the same sources of oppression and injustice. Um, so... I think that might be somewhat of a false comparison. If you're for ideological freedom or painter's freedom, for instance, if you do pornographic work and, and you get suppressed, that's really the same freedom you're fighting for. Personally, I, I, I guess I sort of disagree with your premise. I think it's a, what do they call it, a false um, a comparison, I guess, something like that. And what about the technological developments that have not only affected but influenced the direction of the arts, the visual and electronic displacement of traditional art, also with the spoken word displacing the written word. Well, I, I, it's a conundrum for sure, and governmental forces will always win on corporate forces because they hold the means to create technological art, if you want to call it that. It's not really art, I don't think. But the, the left... Um, of which I am a part, uh, should always try to keep up, whether they can or not. That's not really the point. The point is to um, adapt the same weapons that your uh, oppressor uses against you. So if, if you were a painter in the 1960s and, and uh, uh, painting has become less effective, although I would, I would argue that that's not true because past painting also speaks to, to future uh, predicaments like um, I'm thinking of uh, Barbara Kruger in the 60s, who was a, a hugely popular and effective feminist painter, anti-consumer painter. Though her work is still just as relevant as it was back then, if not more. And Sue Ko, uh, another person who has uh, bravely challenged the uh, the so-called uh, establishment, um, her entire career. And there's hundreds of hundreds of painters like that. But some painters can adapt to technological means, and they do become more effective. I, I'm thinking of younger people now that are um, working, uh, you know, on uh, non-mainstream media, on social media against the war in Ukraine and, and other issues which uh, we need to be consumed by in order to fight. So I don't see it as a huge problem. I do see it um, Probably not as optimistically as some people would like, but uh, it, it's uh, it, it's an equation of power against powerlessness, and we have to 
at least maintain what powerlessness we have, if you excuse that sort of uh, paradox. And would you like to talk about some of your own related works that will be on exhibit in our next Arts Express magazine issue in April? And what inspired those works politically? Oh, uh, well, thank you. Uh, Yeah, I mean, um, I guess my political interest in art was when I was a child, basically. I I was a child of uh, both sides of my family were in the military. They came home, they talked about the war, I drew pictures of soldiers, you know, it's pretty simple as that. Uh, I was uh, raised in that environment and encouraged in that environment, and 20 years passed and all of a sudden Vietnam came along. Uh, I graduated from high school in 1967, and uh, the first work I ever exhibited was uh, about Vietnam and the the horror in Vietnam, and it featured like a... um, a journalist who was blindfolded and crucified on a pen or bound to a pen. I mean, it was maybe too simplistic, but that's how I got interested in doing political art. Uh, I got interested in the Army, and uh, I had abandoned art for most of my life since then, but then I really got back into it. And uh, the political situation hadn't improved in the United States, and um, so I started painting pictures about it. I painted pictures of Lenin and Rosa Luxemburg, uh, those kind of people over the years, um, people that need to be remembered, and people that could spur other people to read up on them and read up on uh, Marxism and communism. And uh, what was the coming of the of the uh, digital age? At first, I rejected it, but then I realized that that was silly because if you're going to influence people, you have to influence them on the media that they read or look at. Uh, so I got very interested in uh, Dadaism, which came after World War One as a rejection of World War One of whatever uh, uh, the bourgeois uh, project that had led up to World. And I haven't stopped doing that since. I started with cut-and-paste um, uh, collage, and then I graduated to digital work um, when it became physically impossible for me to have the fine motor skills to do cut-and-paste, and I'm glad I did it. Social media is an excellent place to um, display uh, any any kind of work, and especially political work because it's up-to-date. It's uh, Young people tend to use it a lot. Young people are looking for answers as to why their lives suck, I think, in a lot of ways, and, and why all these wars perpetuated by the United States keep going on year after year after year. So uh, that was kind of my, in brief, my uh, evolution into doing digital work. And if I could do movies, I'd do movies. But uh, that's a collective effort and not an individual effort. And what direction would you hope art to take in the future? and to best make a political impact on the world? Well, well, certainly to keep up on, on the digital airways, and now uh, people can make movies, uh, younger people, they have younger, more versatile, flexible minds than me, can figure out how to make movies and, and make their statements and not depend on corporate banking to invest in their work. They become a real um, subversive threat to, to um, the world as it is. And the world as it is, is uh, getting worse and worse, in, in my mind, more and more oppressive, the gulf between the rich and the poor and all that. So I think that's the future. I think young people will, hopefully, they'll read enough theory and history of leftist ideology, socialist ideology, that they can process it and then present it uh, new among their peers and anybody else who cares to, to watch or listen uh, to spread the message that this isn't the world we have to have, it's the world we've been given. Okay, thank you, Peter Wise, our Arts Express artist in residence. We're calling him from Iowa. Yes, yes, thanks uh, thanks to you very much, and uh, geez, I hope we talk again. And the artwork of Peter Wise can be seen online at peterwise.com. Hi, Joker. Are those live rounds? Seven, six, two millimeter. Full metal jacket.
comes in here and catches us, we'll both be in a world of I am in a world of Matthew Modine, and you're listening to Arts Express. Express. Brush up your Shakespeare. Start quoting him now. Brush up your Shakespeare and the women you will wow. With the wife of the British ambassador, try a crack out of Troilus and Cressida. If she says she won't buy it or tight it, make her tight it. What's more, as you like it. If she says your behavior is heinous, kick her right in the Coriolanus. Hi, this is Jack Shalom. Don't touch that dial. That was Brush Up Your Shakespeare, a song that signals another in our series of Shakespeare Without Tears, Shakespeare for the 21st Century. If you love Shakespeare, hate Shakespeare, or are just curious about him, this is the place to be. Imagine, please, a working-class uprising. The lower classes are starving. They demand the right to eat. They want access to the great stores of grain, specifically corn that has been won in the recent war, confiscated from the enemy, but withheld from the peasants. No. That's not the beginning of the Paris Commune uprising, which incidentally has its anniversary this week, but it is the beginning of the most class-conscious play that Shakespeare ever wrote, called Coriolanus. Now, even if you're familiar with many of Shakespeare's plays, you may have never heard of Coriolanus or read it. It's not often performed or assigned in schools for reasons which we'll talk about a little later, but I think it's one of Shakespeare's greatest plays and certainly one worthy of becoming acquainted with. Now, let's be clear. Shakespeare was not Karl Marx. He was a theater artist and businessman and a very successful one at that. Still, Shakespeare had a keen eye for class differences and understood the dynamics and contradictions of political and social change. The setting of the play is Rome, and although there are obvious echoes of Shakespeare's previously written play, Julius Caesar, this is an earlier Rome, set some 500 years earlier, where there had yet to be a Roman emperor, and Rome was nominally a republic, though the Senate was largely made up of wealthy patricians. The Romans have just defeated their enemies, the Volscians, and garnered much booty, including stores of corn. But the peasants are ready to explode. Despite the recent victory, they are starving. No corn for you! When told that the patricians care for them and love them, one citizen cries out, Care for us! True, indeed! They ne'er cared for us yet! Suffer us to famish, and their storehouses crammed with grain! Make edicts for usury to support usurers! 
repeal daily any wholesome act established against the rich, and provide more piercing statutes daily to chain up and restrain the poor. If the wars eat us not up, they will, and theirs or the love they bear us. Soon enough, the victorious war general Coriolanus shows up, and he finds the revolting peasants, well, revolting. Now, Coriolanus is no armchair general, but a true fighting machine, a Rambo who can take on multiple attackers at a time face to face. Coriolanus's proud narcissistic persona is of a man who thinks that in his ability to kill and therefore to lead, he knows something that the rest of society is afraid to admit to itself, that nothing Nothing at all matters, not corn, not the trappings of power, not wealth. One thing and one thing only matters. The power of might, the power of the sword, the power of murder and death. It's only from that ability to kill that all other power flows. And it is that knowledge, that absolute certainty, that leads to the contempt of Coriolanus for everyone else. He despises the lower classes. He sees them as cowards who deserve no spoils of war, certainly not corn. He says of them, They ne'er did service for it. Being pressed to the war, even when the navel of the state was touched, they would not thread the gates. This kind of service did not deserve corn gratis. But Coriolanus cannot totally run roughshod over the plebeians. He needs them in order to be appointed council of the Roman state, because the poor have managed to wring some concessions from the Roman Senate. First, they have two tribunes appointed to represent them in the Senate. And second, no one may be crowned to the position of council without an approval from the plebeians. The approval is generally pro forma, though there is an odd tradition that goes with it. The candidate for counsel must lift his toga publicly to display all his war wounds and ask directly for approval of the rabble. Well, but all this is sickening show to Coriolanus. He does not like all this having to appease the plebeians and showing off. Actions are what matter to him, not words. Coriolanus's mother, though, who Coriolanus worships, raises such a ruckus about letting a golden opportunity for power to slip by that Coriolanus reluctantly agrees to go before the crowd and plays nice as best as he can in order for him to claim the title of counsel. He tells his nagging mother, Pray be content, mother! I am going to the marketplace. Chide me no more. A mountebank there loves cog their hearts from them and come home, beloved, of all the trades in Rome. Look, I am going. Commend me to my wife. I'll return counsel, or never trust to what my tongue can do in the way of flattery further. But... Behind Coriolanus's back, more political machinations are taking place. The appointed Senate tribunes, who have been advising the peasants, realize that they've made a mistake in helping to broker this deal. They realize if Coriolanus becomes counsel, he'll get so much power as to make their very own power in the Senate diminish to nothing. So the tribunes cook up a plan whereby they'll convince the peasants to withdraw their approval of Coriolanus. Moreover, they plan to bait Coriolanus with accusations of pridefulness, knowing that his temper will get the better of him and make him look treasonous. And they are right. For Coriolanus swallows the bait and rails at his accusers. Finally, the tribunes declare a sentence of banishment on Coriolanus, which only emboldens him further. He says, You common cry of curs, whose breath I hate as reek of the rotten fens, whose loves I prize as the dead carcasses of unburied men that do corrupt my air. 
I banish you. And here, remain with your uncertainty. Let every feeble rumor shake your hearts. Your enemies, with nodding of their plumes, fan you into despair. Despising for you the city, thus I turn my back. There is a world elsewhere. So in bitter resentment, Coriolanus offers to lead his former enemies, the opposing Volscian army, to victory against Rome. Ironically, however, after a string of victories by Coriolanus against the Roman cities in service to the Volscians, the lead Volscian general becomes afraid of Coriolanus's popularity and so assassinates Coriolanus. Now, there are passages in Coriolanus that are the equal to anything in the Shakespearean canon and characters that are rich and complex as any that Shakespeare has written. And yet the play is not frequently performed. What is it about the play Coriolanus that makes it so unpopular? Well, perhaps because the play is a remarkably uneasy and bleakly nihilistic tale. There's no easy patriotism, no stirring celebration of valor as in Henry V. Here, war is horrible, brutal, thoughtless, and only leads to more war. Each class in society is more self-serving, fickle, and deluded than the other. It's a play with not one hero. No one remains unscathed. The audience can root for no one. Now, Coriolanus was written around 1608 in the latter part of Shakespeare's career. And Shakespeare, like Coriolanus, needed the lower classes for support, though he often found them unreliable. It's not surprising that Shakespeare would have a love-hate relationship with the common folk. Like all producers, he's got to put backsides into seats or stiffs into the standing pit. And if he fails to do that, then he'll have, as Hamlet said, a play that was never acted, or if it was not above once, for the play I remember pleased not the million. And the peasants aroused to rebellion in Coriolanus were not just some imaginary fantasy. In fact, contemporaneous with Shakespeare's writing of Coriolanus, there had been a peasant uprising in the English Midlands, fueled by, wait for it, the price of corn. Now, in the play, Coriolanus becomes, like Oedipus, an exile in the wilderness. And in about five years after Coriolanus's opening, Shakespeare, too, himself becomes an exile, although, in his case, self-imposed, leaving London and his theater for his house in Stratford-upon-Avon, some a hundred miles away from his theater. Now, Shakespeare was a complete man of the theater who had gotten his hands dirty in London as playwright, actor, director, producer, financier, a man who had had his hand in all phases of the theater. The old legends, in fact, had it that he had begun as a stable boy for the theaters. Literally, he was someone knee-deep in theater manure since his teen years. But now he must have been getting to think of retirement. He's come off a long string of hits. He's tired, maybe. But I get the feeling of something else. What if this? What if for some reason he is in effect exiled from his own theater company? Maybe he goes off in a huff because the rest of his company can't get along with his dictatorial ways anymore. Maybe there are quote-unquote artistic differences. Maybe he feels disrespected the way Coriolanus feels disrespected after all I've done for you. Well, in this view, Shakespeare becomes what Coriolanus becomes, a bitter man who has done some service and who, betrayed by a fickle public, goes into exile. This is all speculation, of course, but that aspect of Coriolanus's personality, more than anything else, stands front and center in this play the disrespected man of action. What Coriolanus can't see is that it is not just individuals who take action, but classes which take action. Coriolanus believes that the warrior who stands as the noble man of action alone is the independent author of his own destiny. 
but in reality the warrior is merely carrying out the imperatives of much larger forces than any one individual, and Shakespeare knew that. Coriolanus ignores the working-class uprising at his own peril. In director Dan Sullivan's 2019 production of Coriolanus, at the end of the play, when the Volscian general gives the word to his underlings to lift up Coriolanus's dead body, the underlings refuse and you can see the look of terror on the general's face as he realizes that he himself might be the object of a revolt. And maybe that's why Shakespeare had to sell his story as a Roman one, safely distanced from his British reality, because Shakespeare is subversively saying, your leaders are no good, the public is no good, your patriotism is no good, your hero generals are no good. The whole system is teetering on the edge. I've been talking about the play Coriolanus by William Shakespeare. This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller. Rush on your Shakespeare, and they'll all cow, cow, forsooth, and they'll all cow, cow, think style, and they'll all cow, cow, we trial, and they'll all cow. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.